Friends, I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to Romans chapter 5. And as you do, let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your most holy word, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that you would conform us into the likeness of your son, that you would grow us and change us for the sake of our good and your glory. Amen. The affair had been going on for years. The attraction and eventual surrender to unfaithfulness had actually surprised both people. They thought of themselves as honorable. The woman was happily married, living in an enviable situation with a truly great man. Her lover was an achiever at the highest level. He was a most trusted friend and compatriot of the woman's husband. If they were ever discovered, what would the husband do? The laws of the land required that capital punishment would occur in the case of such unfaithfulness. This was the story of Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot in T.H. White's novel, The Once and Future King better known to most of us as the famous movie musical Camelot. In the book, Arthur's illegitimate son, Mordred, exposes the affair, forcing Arthur to confront the incredible dilemma of bringing justice to bear on those he loves the most. Before the affair was exposed, Arthur had explained the need for justice to Guinevere and Lancelot. You will find, Arthur said, that when kings are bullies who believe in force, people are bullies too. If I don't stand for law, I won't have law among my people. You see, Lancelot, I have to be absolutely just. Far from being willing to execute his enemies, a real king must be willing to execute his friends. That dilemma of the king's justice pitted against the king's love is captured in the musical Camelot when Mordred sings, Arthur, what a magnificent dilemma. Let her die and your life is over. Let her live and your life's a fraud. Which will it be, Arthur? Do you kill the queen or kill the law? We could say that God's dilemma is very similar in its nature. You see, as we've talked about over the last number of weeks, God is the loving creator and king of the world that we have rebelled against the king in our sin and that the punishment for that sin is death and judgment. 
This creates an incredible dilemma for God because God created us. God loves us. God cherishes us. God formed us from the dust of the earth and made us into his very own image. And then he breathed life into us. You can't get any more intimate, any more personal, any more caring than that. And yet, we have gone our own way. We've rebelled against God. We've deliberately defied his commands and we refuse his overtures of love and reconciliation. We rebel against the king. And so here's the dilemma. These two attributes of God, his love and his justice seem to be pitted against each other. And as we've seen, so many of God's attributes are, are intertwined in their nature. They're linked together. Holiness and righteousness and justice are all linked. You can't pull them apart. God must give justice through judgment. It cannot be any other way because he's holy and because he's righteous. And his wrath against Sin and sinners is real and it's strong and it's powerful. And at the very same time, God loves the ones who deserve justice. You. <laughs> Me. So what should the king do? Well, the Bible tells us that the king sent his son to die. And he did so to display his love and satisfy his justice. And this morning, I want to focus on two passages in Romans that point us to that reality. That Jesus came to die to display God's love and to satisfy God's justice. The first one is Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. And this is what it says. Follow with me. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, pause with me and just consider how the motive of God's love or the motivation of God's love against the backdrop of his wrath is made clear. Look at the phrases. Verse 10, we were enemies of God. Rebels against the king, as we've been talking about. Verse 6, we were still weak. 
And he goes on to say, ungodly. Verse 9 implies that we were indeed destined for wrath. And this was just in its nature. That idea of God's wrath does not sit well with us uh, often at all. We so quickly and easily diminish the significance of our own sin. We prop up our own levels of righteousness. But in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards describes it this way. The bow of God's wrath is bent. And the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. But verse 8 tells us that despite this justice, the requirement for justice and judgment for sin and the wrath that ensues from God, God shows his love for us in sending Christ to die for us. In verse 9, verse 11, the death justifies us. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It saves us from wrath and it reconciles us to God. There's a lot more we could say about that, but for today, God sent Jesus to die for us because he loves us. God sent Jesus to die for us because he loves us. And that love is displayed against the backdrop of a required justice. And so that begs the question, how does Jesus dying actually satisfy God's justice? Jesus dying in our place displays God's love, but how does it satisfy God's justice? Flip back just a few pages to Romans chapter 3 with me if you have your Bible still open. Because in Romans chapter 3, Paul is talking about justice. And he's talking about God's need to uphold his righteousness. Remember, holiness God's purity, righteousness is that purity as applied to beings around God, justice. These things are all interlinked with each other. And Paul says this, starting in verse 21, is God's righteousness, should that be questioned or can it be upheld? But now the righteousness of God, verse 21, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's the problem that's identified. The problem is this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and God, the king of the universe, appears to have allowed this rebellion to happen for centuries without bringing about justice. And if that's true, and if God's justice is the other side of the coin to his righteousness, is God actually a righteous God? That's what verse 25 means when it says, God in his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. Former sins can't be passed over if God is to maintain his righteousness. They have to be reckoned with. If God is going to be holy and righteous and just, judgment needs to occur. And yet those who had died had not received their full judgment. But then it goes on to say that God sent Jesus to die for us because he loves us. And this satisfies this need for justice in three specific ways. And this is really important. I thought long and hard about how and what I wanted to talk about this morning with regard to Jesus dying for us. And it's really important that you know why Jesus dying for us is effective for your salvation. That's not just merely an act of love, though it is. But it does something. And this is what it does. The first way that his death satisfies God's justice is through substitution. Now, you know, a substitute is a person or a thing that takes the place of another. And as we know, there are bad substitutes and there are good substitutes. I can't believe it's not butter is a bad substitute for a lot of reasons, but the biggest reason is because we can believe it. We can believe it's not butter when we taste it. It's not a good substitute. But when an imperfect rebel like you and like me has a substitute to take our place in judgment, then this is a good substitute for us. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus is fully man and fully God. We see that proclaimed again and again. And in his humanity, he followed God perfectly. He followed his rule and reign of the king. He never once defied him, rebelled against him, or sinned. 
And as fully God, he was not some mere distant third party to step in and to take the penalty for you or for me. In fact, he is God. And as a result, we see that him taking the punishment is God himself taking the punishment of sin upon himself as the perfect substitute. This language of substitution is everywhere in the Bible. If Jesus is nothing, he is certainly a substitute. Romans 5.8, we just read it a minute ago. Listen to this substitution language. Christ died, but he didn't just die. He died for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before Jesus came, the Lord has laid iniquity on us all. Isaiah 53, 12, he bore the sin of many. John 1, John calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not his sin, but the sin of the world. We see in 2 Corinthians 5, God made Christ to be sin, even though he was perfect. Galatians 3.13, Christ became a curse for us. Again, Hebrews 9.28, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. In 1 Peter 2.24, Peter, Peter says that he himself bore our sins in his body. Our sins, his body on the tree. Jesus was the perfect substitute. The second way that Jesus satisfies God's justice on the cross is through what we call expiation. Now that is a word that I am quite certain you've never used in everyday speech. But it's, it's not hard to understand. Expiation. X, the prefix X, very simply means out of. Expiation has to do with the removal of something or taking something out, taking something away. And in this case, it is the removal of our guilt. Expiation is another way to express the fact that Jesus atones for our sins. He takes our sins and away from us and he puts it on himself. The Old Testament paints the picture of this wonderful forgiveness, this removal of sin that's related to God's love. It's profound in its effect, and we'll get to that in a minute. But in Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, it says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's a beautiful picture. As far as the east is from the west, the farthest possible distance in our finite conception, that's how far God removes sin from us. That's expiation, the removal of sin and guilt. And the third way that Jesus satisfies God's justice is this word that we see in a number of different Bible texts. It's 
another word we never use, propitiation. If X means out of something, then pro means for something, right? God's wrath is turned away from us and turned toward Jesus on the cross as he bears the guilt and the sin. God goes then from being at enmity with us to being for us. This morning we sang a song about God being for us. How do you know God is for you? Because of the work of Jesus on the cross. That's the only way you can know that God is for you. Think about it this way, that through this idea of Jesus on the cross, God's wrath is appeased. Now, when you think of appeasement, you might think of that in a marital sense. We're not going to go there. You might think of it in a political sense. There is a doctrine, a political doctrine of appeasement. Every few years, it seems like the dictator of North Korea makes some international threats, right? And then he pops off a test missile into the middle of the ocean to do a little bit of saber rattling. And in an effort and with a desire to not let this guy start another war, the Western nations kind of come around and they appease him. They get him to back down and they do so by offering something of value, usually foreign aid to his country. And as a result, he settles down for a while until he needs something else. It was the doctrine of appeasement that many European nations enacted with regard to Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Reich, hoping that they could get them to stop their advance through Europe. Sometimes appeasement works, sometimes it doesn't work. But in both of those examples, this is not the type of godly manifestation of appeasement that we're talking about here. Because if wrath is truly appeased, that means it is satisfied. It means that the anger that divided the relationship no longer exists. It's not going to only come back around a couple of years later. It means it is dealt with and gone forever. And as a result, the relationship is mended. Jesus is the propitiation for us. He satisfies the wrath of God. 1 John 2, 2 says this. It says that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for us, to mend the relationship. Romans 3.25, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so you're starting to see the distinction, the component parts of what Jesus did on the cross all together create something incredible, but individually are important to understand. Guilt can be removed. But if guilt, if it's only guilt that is removed, the offended party could still have wrath for things previously committed. And even if I'm presently declared righteous, my past sin and rebellion carries with it a debt or a penalty that needs to be paid. And the relationship can be 
presently ruptured, even though I'm presently righteous. That is what expiation and propitiation together accomplish. Guilt is removed, his death on the cross in our place, and, it is, and the wrath is satisfied or paid for in such a way that it never comes up again and you, for the rest of your days and all of eternity, can be in a relationship with the king again. God sent his son to die for us because he loves us. And there was only one person that could do that. Jesus can both satisfy the demands of justice that the rebel sinners deserve and he can display God's love on those rebel sinners who God created. In both Romans 5 and Romans 3, you can see how access to this forgiveness rooted in love and justice. Access to this forgiveness is not difficult to obtain. It comes by faith. It's faith that we confess to God that we're guilty of our sin and our rebellion against him as king. It's by faith that we trust Jesus is indeed his perfect son. It's by faith that you reach out to him and you ask for forgiveness that he offers you. Not everyone puts their faith in him, but for those who do, they are reconciled to the king and they're able to live under his reign forever. You can never be reconciled to the king if you simply just try to reconcile yourself. You need someone who can remove guilt and you need someone who can satisfy wrath. Jesus does that. When, you, when he does and when you trust in him with your faith, you can live in joy and confidence under the reign of the king. Your past sins have been removed. Your present sins have been removed. The sins that you have not even yet committed have been expiated. They've been removed. No more guilt, no more shame, no more insecurities waiting to see if God will somehow reject you on the final day. Friends, when you put your faith in Jesus, you need to understand your sins are a lot farther away from you than you think. And that's incredibly freeing. You might not feel like they're far. And yet, you're incredibly relieved when you realize that this is precisely the work of Jesus on the cross. So how do you reckon with that removal of sin while at the same time struggling with your sins currently, even this week? How can Jesus say it is finished. I don't need to die again for sin while at the same time you wrestling with your own sin. There's a Latin phrase that the German reformer Martin Luther used to describe this reality. 
The phrase is simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously justified and sinner. While we're in the body, we struggle with sin, but we have confidence that we are justified. Remember what justified is? We're declared righteous before God. Through faith in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, simultaneously justified and sinner. Friends, it's refreshing to think that in Christ, I don't live under the yoke of condemnation. When you go through your days, when you put your head on the pillow at night, when you replay the things that would deserve judgment or require condemnation, that you don't live under that yoke if Jesus is your savior, you've been restored to the king forever. So I still struggle. I still struggle with sinful rebellion, but through faith in Christ, that sin has been paid for. I have struggled in my life with pride, but it's paid for on the cross. I will struggle at some point, sometime, somewhere with envy. That sin has been paid for on the cross. I struggle with not loving God with my whole heart, but the wrath that that deserves has been satisfied on the cross. I have said words out of my mouth that are sinful, that reveal something about my heart, whether they're in joking or in anger or in slander. But Jesus has taken that guilt away from me on the cross. I will sin in some way against my own children, which is a terrible feeling. But the sin has been removed from me as far as the east is from the west on the cross. I have struggled with self-sufficiency, but that sin has been blotted out and taken away on the cross. I sometimes have sinful anger, but Jesus took that to the cross. I will have sinful doubts as I go through my days, but I will stand before God and no accusation of Satan will stick as I march confidently toward the day of judgment. Because when the book is opened and the deeds are read and I grieve deeply the sins and my own rebellion against our king, despite how deep that grief is, I will have an infinitely greater joy because I know in whom I have believed and through his work on the cross, the sins have been removed. The wrath has been satisfied. The justice has been served. The penalty has been paid and I will enter glory to be with him forever. And you can too. God sent Jesus to die for us because he loves us. Do you have faith in him? He offers this forgiveness to you. Do your loved ones have faith in him? He offers this forgiveness to them and he might offer it to them 
even through your very words, as you share the story of a king and a rebellion and a judgment and a love. You need but take it in faith. And when you do, you walk through the rest of your days with an incredible freedom, knowing that you've been restored to the king. Perhaps you've heard the account of the farmer when his sheep and his pig had escaped. Together they had found the weak rail in the fence and they had pressed upon it until it broke under their weight. Seeing their opportunity, they quickly bolted from the field and began to explore their new and unfamiliar surroundings. It didn't take long for the farmer to realize that two of his animals were missing, and so he set out to find them. But the animals had wandered and had not left much of a trail behind them. Day turned to night, and after resting fitfully, he resumed his search in the morning. The animals had now been gone for more than 24 hours, and he began to wonder what could have possibly happened to them. It was in the afternoon of the second day that he began to hear a distant bleeding, the sound of his sheep crying out. He began to follow that sound as it led to the nearby bog, and there he found his missing sheep and his missing pig. Both had fallen into a deep ditch. Both had become coated with muck. Both were unable to scramble out. But where the pig was content to wallow in the mud, the sheep had known to bleat pathetically until the farmer had come to rescue it, to lift it out, and to cleanse it. And then the farmer said, if you are ever deceived into sin and overtaken by weakness, don't lose heart. Go at once to your compassionate Savior. Tell him in the simplest words the story of your fall, your rebellion, and the sorrow that you feel. Ask him to wash you at once and to restore your soul. For if a sheep and a sow fall into a ditch, the sow wallows in it. But the sheep bleats pathetically until she is cleansed by her master. Be the sheep, my friends, not the pig. There are two ways to live. <laughs> Just two. Under the rule and the reign of the king or under the rule and the reign of yourself. God sent Jesus to die for us because he loves us and allows us to live under his rule again. Let's pray. Father, the intricacies and the nuances and the power of Jesus' work on the cross are in many ways beyond us, but thank you for showing us the nature of substitution the importance of our guilt being removed and the glory of, our, of your wrath being turned and you becoming for us. 
God, thank you that if you are for us, nobody can be against us. That if we no longer carry the weight of sin in our life, that we can walk with freedom and confidence before you as our king. That we can go about our days in ongoing trust as we follow you faithfully. Help us now this day for those who have been wallowing in the mud, who've been deceived, who feel the weight and the piercing of our sin even this day. God, today let us be the sheep who cries out in need of your saving hand that you would cleanse us by forgiving us of our sins. We thank you for promising to do so for those who put their faith in your son. And we worship him now in Jesus' name. Amen.